All right. Welcome to another episode of Headlight in the Fog. We're your hosts, Akshay Thomas and Laura Kaplan. We are very pleased today to be able to welcome Phoebe Lynn, Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the Oregon Health and Science University, and Dilraj Graywal, Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Duke University, to the show today. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about uses of OCT and OCT angiography in our uveitis patients. Obviously, this is a very broad topic, which could we, we which we could discuss for hours on end, but we're going to try to at least hit the key points. So just starting with very basic stuff. So Phoebe, for a typical uveitis patient, what is your OCT imaging parameters in the sense are you getting volume scans, EDI scans? What's your typical imaging parameters? Yeah, I think I've developed this over time where I, I really want to catch on a consistent basis as much as I can at the depth I want. And so I have this protocol that I've developed over time, not me, but it's just a protocol that we use on uveitis patients at KCI. And that's at least a 30 by 25 volume scan to go from arcades to arcades, from the disc all the way out to the temporal macula, including the whole macula with ART9 with enough resolution to be able to see at each of those levels. And that's in order to get the volume map that I want, but also to capture as many lesions in the macula as I can with EDI. And so that's my go-to is this 30 by 25 ART9 61 scan volume with EDI. And so again, I try to have it somewhat standardized, even though not every patient necessarily needs that. And that's because I, I gain a lot of information from that, from things like lesions, CME, ERM, all the way to things like non-cystic perivascular thickening, which I use the volume map to look at, which is a, kind of a nice surrogate for FA leakage. So I try to capture that. I obviously have a low threshold to get wide field OCTA as well, or sorry, OCT as well. But I, I find that the resolution on, on a good macular scan that includes arcades to arcades is very helpful in most patients. And Dilraj, what about you? So I get the same scan that PB gets. And I just wanted to mention here, we were talking about the Heidelberg Spectralis platform here. Some, depending on where you practice, you may be using either Spectralis, Zeiss, or OptiView. Those are typically the most commonly used machines. But we generally get a volume scan using the same parameters on Spectralis that Phoebe mentioned. And I also get a seven-line EDI scan, which has a higher ART, and also a single-line scan through the fovea EDI with an even higher ART. And the purpose of that is just the averaging makes it easier to get a higher resolution scan right through the fovea. And secondly, in cases where there's some inflammation and you're not able to get a volume scan just because of tracking issues, it is much easier to at least get a cut through the fovea and even more so in children. So at least it gives you information about the status of the fovea. And then finally, for baseline visits, I do get an RNFL scan as well. We all know that there can be thickening of the RNFL inflammation, but at least it gives me a sense of how healthy the optic nerve is and how concerned I need to be about that part going forward. Yeah, I agree. I like that idea a lot. I end up, I think, getting an RNFL for quantitative. I, I, it's actually pretty accurate these days for quantitative improvement of optic disc anema. So I actually like that. I, I Perhaps I should switch to moving to more baselines of those as well, because quite a number of our patients from front of the eye to back of the eye uveitis have disc edema to some degree. So I, I, I agree. I've been using that RNFL more and more. Laura, just out of curiosity, are you also on the Heidelberg platform? Yes, we predominantly use Heidelberg. And similar to Phoebe and, and Dilraj, I, I also like to get a scan kind of arcade to arcade. I think it's really helpful for patients that have more chororetinal lesions like PIC or multifocal choroiditis, where you're looking and really do want to be comparing for differences in elevation in these smaller lesions. So I really like that dense 61 line scan. I still also get a fair number of radial scans, and this is actually more because of historical practice patterns for prior providers. That's oftentimes all we have from prior years. And so it's like, if I want to be able to compare back well in the, you know, something from 2015, for me, I need to have both, both sets of protocols. I probably underutilize EDI imaging, though, and that's something I probably need to add a little more of into my practice. I have it in specific circumstances where I'll specifically request it, but it's not necessarily something we routinely are getting on every single patient. Yeah, I mean, I came from using Heidelberg in residency and, and fellowship and practice. I'm using the Zyceris platform. So I think the only thing I do differently, I, I do get baseline RNFL and arcade to arcade um, high density volume scans, but also like the rest, I'll get like one, like a 12 millimeter scan centered on the fovea and it goes from nerve to temporal macula. It's very interesting. I find I find it useful not only you guys been retina patients as well, just especially for like the visual retinal interface, kind of looking past the macula. So it's, it's very interesting. Our protocols are fairly similar, but yeah, certainly EDI 
and at least one uh, EDI scan centered on the foveus was all of us are getting. So now that we've kind of talked about our general average uveitis patients, let's talk a little bit about what we're looking at these OCTs. Um, let's actually start focusing more with the retina and then we can move into the EDI findings. What, um, Phoebe, are some of the more common things that you're, you're commonly seeing in a uveitis patient on your OCT and, and what are you doing with that knowledge in, in your management plans? Yeah, so I mean, ranging from intraretinal fluid, subretinal fluid, mentioned before was kind of that non-cystic perivascular thickening that I like to look at on the volume, but also the lesions themselves. So new lesions, lesion height, lesion width, easy loss drill, because I, you know, I learned that from Dr. Dr. Graywall here, is you know, drill and easy loss being kind of a nice way to gauge what their visual prognosis is going to be. And so all of that information goes into RNFL thickness as well. And, and that's for patients with optic disc anemia, but also the, just the inevitable complication of uveitic or steroid-induced glaucoma and just kind of having to manage all of that at the same time. So I've, the, the OCT, the macular OCT is, is seriously like, probably the single best utilized imaging technique for, for uveitic patients, I would say. Dilraj, why don't you talk to us a little bit about drill since this is a bit of a newer described, I guess, phenomenon, and, and maybe how we can apply it in the uveitis patients. Sure. So DRILL stands for disorganization of the retinal inner layers. It's basically a loss of the natural laminar neurosensory architecture that you would expect to see in the inner retina. And initially, Jennifer Sun described this in diabetes, and it's a sign of neurodegeneration. So there's a there's a, you know we're not clear yet whether it's inflammatory a sequelae of neurodegeneration or it's ischemic sequelae. There's probably a component of both towards it. I think it's disease specific. So for example, in diabetes, there may be uh, more of an ischemic you know issue, whereas in uveitis, it's more inflammatory. But basically, when you have a chronic process over time, the retinal layers they lose their normal architecture because of neurodegeneration. And that reflects on the OCT as a loss of normal laminar architectures. You're not able to trace out the individual inner retinal layers. It's important to uh, recognize that you have to assess drill independently of the presence of cystoid macular edema. Because when you have large cysts or when you have subretinal fluid, that's going to distort your retina. And that may make it uh, harder to recognize whether there's true laminar loss or it's just that the layers are pushed out because of the uh, fluid. But the reason why it's uh, helpful to recognize drill is because it has some prognostic value. When you inherit a patient, when you start with a patient who has drill at their baseline visit, you know, one, that the disease has been going on for some period of time. Two, there is some component of this which is likely to be irreversible. Uh, there are there is data there that shows that drill is reversible to some extent in both diabetes and uveitis, but it is not completely reversible. So I think from both of these standpoints, it's very helpful to have that at baseline to document it because you can discuss that with the patient that, look, this is, you've already already starting at a point where there is some component of damage. And therefore, even if you were to, let's say, dry out your macula completely, we're not going to be able to get your vision back to where it was several years ago. That's very helpful. One challenge, you know, Phoebe, I'd say we, some of us have with our uveitic patients is if you have a patient with thick or multiple choroiditis and they're coming in with some new distortion and you see a small new lesion on OCT, is there a, is there a way to, is there, are there certain features that make you think that this, this is a uveitic CNV or there's like an early choroiditis lesion? I mean, in the absence of fluid, I would say it's actually difficult. You know, I, I've tried to convince myself that there are um, various aspects in terms of like diffuse hyperreflectivity or fuzzy edges in terms of the hyperreflectiveness of the lesion, the distinct edges of the hyperreflective lesion. But ultimately, it's actually very difficult to tell. And that's why I think OCTA has been great for PIC and multifocal choroiditis in order to distinguish the two. Now, the question, of course, is whether or not you'd have simultaneous processes going on, meaning you could have CNV in most of these lesions, as Robert Watsi kind of described in histology like long ago. But so there could be just, there could actually be CNV in many of these lesions, but it doesn't mean that they don't have active inflammatory processes as well. And so, so I, I find it very useful to use OCTA to distinguish a CNV within a PIC lesion but it doesn't tell me with whether it excludes an inflammatory process. So I just wanted to distinguish that. I also wanted to mention one thing I do not use OCT for, and I'd like to kind of hear what you guys thought is 
posterior vitreous cell. That is not something I use OCT for and do not find it helpful for. People have tried to use kind of the vitreous, the relative intensity of the vitreous to the RPE Brooks complex as kind of um, surrogates for vitreous activity level or vitreous inflammatory activity level. And perhaps there is some corroboration or some support for, you know, data to support that. But in terms of just talking about vitreous cell, I mean, you have hemorrhage, like RBCs can look the same. And so I actually don't, I mean, until we can distinguish the reflective characteristic size and reflectivity characteristics to distinguish like an RBC from a WBC. I don't know what you guys think as other experts in this field. Dilaraj, what do you think? Yeah. So I, I I completely agree with you, Phoebe, about it being non-specific. I think the one situation where I do find it to be somewhat helpful is in children, mm-hmm. because in, in, in intermediate uveitis, partial tendinitis, it's hard to convince parents and the kid themselves to get an angiogram every single visit. So in addition to the non-cystic thickening, I do think that the presence of vitreous cells, at least qualitatively assessing whether there's been some improvement can be somewhat helpful. It's important to recognize, obviously, you know, that these things are mobile. If you move the eye around a little bit, you'll get a different value. But in in that situation, I I do find it to be somewhat helpful. One thing I'd add is, again, this is more qualitative, again, than quantitative, is if I have a patient that has a new patient, especially with a sneak pupil and a lot of anterior segment inflammation, and I'm not really able to get a, a very high quality OCT, but maybe I get a line scan and I see a decent amount of vitreous cells or what I what hyperreflective dots on the vitreous. I'm at least thinking that this could be more than just an anterior uveitis. Obviously, there can be spillover, but it, again, it's just just more for qualitative. I don't really necessarily use it visit over visit just to watch for improvement per se, but more just a presence or absence. But you're right. I mean, RBCs can look very similar, so it, it, it's it's quite nonspecific, but sometimes just kind of helps uh, gauging the clinical picture. I agree. I think it's kind of hard with how variable it is sometimes using a visit or visit. I think the other situation where I've maybe found it a little helpful, sometimes I see these patients that, you know, you're trying to decide if it's more of an inherited retinal degenerative type process versus some sort of inflammatory retinitis type of process. And I think if they haven't had a history of, right, like a retinal tear or vitreous hemorrhage, and maybe I do see those hyperreflective opacities along the posterior vitreous, maybe if they have a little leakage on my face, sometimes a little more willing to to commit to treating those folks. I think that's maybe the one other patient population where I've sometimes found this, but I mean, that's not evidence-based, right? I mean, that's that's just kind of a personal preference where I've got to decide what we're going to do with this person in front of me and maybe their genetic testing hasn't been revealing and it gives me maybe something to feel a little bit better if I do decide to offer them something that I'm not just committing them to treatment with, without a true diagnosis there. So a little bit of a, of a tough question. So, so Dilraj, presumably a lot of patients that are sent to you have been seen perhaps by other retina specialists, and obviously retina specialists are well attuned to looking at OCTs day in and day out. But the, I think the way we look at them are slightly different as UVI specialists as we're kind of learning so far. Are there any things that you find that are referred to that are perhaps often missed by a retina specialist that doesn't see UVI patients day in and day out on an OCT that happen every so often? Yeah, I, I don't think it's specific to specialists. Just somehow there's some subtle changes that uh, we are just more inclined to view. And also when somebody sends you a patient, you are by default at a slightly higher index of awareness that you need to figure out what's going on. So I think that's just a second set of eyes gives you that advantage. But yes, in general, I still follow the same kind of top-down approach of viewing an OCT. And it's helpful to do it you know, with the patient simultaneously that you okay, look, we start from the vitreous, we go on to the ILM all the way down to RP and choroid. But things that I sometimes would pick up are small areas of BAM. So that's because angiographically silent, you don't see them on a fundus photograph. Similarly, small AMN lesions, uh, because you can see a small hyperreflective area on the near infrared image. And that's particularly helpful when patients are complaining of a small, very specific scotoma that may not have been recognized. It's also important to understand that this is platform dependent. Because sometimes, for example, like you actually use these ICE uh, platform and their near infrared imaging is a little bit different because you use mm-hmm. a non-fast reconstruction rather than a true near IR image that the Heidelberg platform does. So there are some advantages there. Uh, you can also use ancillary tools like multicolor imaging. And I think we might get into fundus autofluorescence, et cetera, later. But putting all of those together helps you. And then finally, as you go a little bit deeper, you might identify subtle areas of outer retinal loss or atrophy. And that's, I think, very helpful when you're dealing with myopes, where there's a concern for PIC or multifocal choroiditis, 
because like you mentioned, it's hard to distinguish inflammatory lesions from CNV, but at least identifying the presence of those lesions will direct you to obtain additional imaging and also direct you towards potentially initiating therapy. Phoebe, anything to add on, on things that you feel are, are sometimes subtle things that may, may be overlooked by someone not often seeing uveitis patients? Yeah, those are the main things are the kind of parafovial easy loss. People are usually looking at that phobia pretty closely. The kind of parafovial, more global easy loss that we can sometimes see in various conditions. I would also say just because, you know, like multimodal imaging really is kind of the mainstay of what we do. We are looking more globally at the eye. So we're already looking at a larger area than most retina specialists do. So, so I would say just placoid lesions being missed, like it'll be it'll thought to be something like AMD, like a GA type of process, rather than realizing that it's actually an inflammatory placoid process, such as serpiginous or placoid TB or placoid syphilis, placoid sarcoidosis as well. And so I think that like because that slow creeping edge of the lesion sometimes are considered inactive when you look at them on examination, but we've been trained to detect those even subtle areas of activity. And, and I mean, it, it's all, and also the way that activity looks on OCT. So it's, it's pretty subtle, I think, just because it can sometimes only be at one single little edge of a placoid lesion. So I think that gets missed. Vitreoretinal lymphoma, kind of the appearance of vitreoretinal lymphoma, I feel like that that's something that can get, get missed very often. Like, Someone will say, oh, this person has AMD. They have some drusen. Well, it was acquired over three months, probably not AMD then. So they can, you can have kind of pseudo drusen appearance on the OCT. That's actually, if it's acquired in a short time period, it's actually vitreoretinal lymphoma, not, not um, drusen or pseudo drusen. Well, moving away from the retina, let's move on to the choroid. So Phoebe, depending on the study you look at, maybe a study says in a certain condition, the choroid is thick. Some say in this condition, the choroid is thin. What's in your mind the utility of choroidal evaluation using your EDI images? I don't think it's super useful used alone, just like almost any other you know, single facet of OCT or even single imaging modality. It has to be taken in context. And I think it just depends on, on where in the course of disease you you have you started to see this patient. So this patient on presentation to you. So yeah, so early in, in the course of disease, VKH, sympathetic. Sarcoid and birdshot all, all should have thickened choroids and probably other conditions as well. And so then as they convalesce, then they, they can have this later on kind of atrophic choroid in some diseases more than others. So I think, I think it's, all, it, it's all important. It's just you have to take it in context and it's very dependent on when in the course of disease you see the patient. Dilraj, I'd say that do you, do you, do you routinely track choroidal thickness over time for your patients? I mean, are there just very specific conditions where you find that useful? Yeah. So in the conditions that Phoebe mentioned, VKH, birdshot, sarcoidosis with choroidal involvement, I do multifocal choroiditis. I do tend to track that. I, I, I think it's helpful, again, in the context of not sometimes not obtaining angiogram at every single visit. It at least gives you a surrogate for control of inflammation and potentially a flare-up as well because you'll often see choroidal thickening uh, as an early sign of a flare-up when patient has symptoms. And also in cases of posterior scleritis, I think it's quite helpful because after you've treated the patient initially, the thickening that you see on ultrasound goes away, but their choroid can still be pretty congested and thick on OCT. So in addition, you can also assess for the presence of choroidal folds if you scan vertically instead of horizontally. And monitoring that uh, is very helpful because, again, if patient symptomatically has a flare, Ultrasound may not show it, but you would see an increase on OCT. How about any tips and tricks for identifying lesions within the choroid? I feel like sometimes I struggle with a birdshot patient and I'm like, ah, is that a birdshot lesion or is that a blood vessel? Birdshot lesion, blood vessel. And, you know, you got to go back and forth in your mind sometimes. Now, if you get an ICG and you're like, oh, there's a, a lesion there. Okay, great. Fine. You feel great. I think I showed one at AAO for Oxys where, I mean, yeah, clearly that was a, a lesion. It went away with treatment. But like, what are some tricks and tips for, for maybe those types of identifying those types of lesions when you're maybe not quite sure what, what pushes you towards saying, yeah, that is an inflammatory lesion in the choroid? I agree. I agree that it's actually not that useful. I mean, unless you get such a large lesion that you have chororetinal distortion, I actually don't find it super useful. I mean, I tell myself that I see these things. It's like an ink blot test or something. <laughs> you really do need to do that global. Like if you have a single cord lesion, then what is the significance of that anyways? 
And so like, if it's a deep chordal lesion, so, but it's more that global picture. So the ICGA, I found to find to be much more helpful when looking at those lesions more globally. And then, uh, yeah, I convinced myself that I can, I can associate that with an OCT EDI chordal lesion. But I mean, what, what about you, Dilraj? Is that something that you use? Like do you count up the chordal lesions on OCT or anything like that? No, I agree with you. I don't think it's particularly helpful. You have to have the co-localization initially, at least, to be certain that these are lesions. It may be somewhat helpful in the context of visits where you're not obtaining an angiogram, but typically no. I think there are some cases where if you have, for example, a large choroidal or even a smaller choroidal granuloma or cases of toxoplasma where there's choroidal involvement, those are easier to monitor using OCT. But uh, birdshot, I, I really don't find it particularly helpful to assess the choroidal lesion. That makes me feel a little better that it's been a struggle there. So you always want to try to teach your trainees something, but at the same time, you're like, am I really telling you this is a lesion for sure or not? <laughs> well, I, I've had people like refer patients for like what they think are choroidal lesions and they're just not like they, they, you know, like it's just sometimes hard with choroidal thickening to outline where the choroidal sclerosis junction is. And then all of a sudden they're making up based on the curvature of their eye, they're making up this chordal lesion. So I've seen it more in the artifactual sense than I have for real chordal lesion. <laughs> well, I was going to say, yeah, I, I agree with, with, with everything you guys have said. I, I, I think that certainly like in, in the VKH patients, one area I find it helpful in terms of just kind of longitudinal assessment is if someone's asymptomatic, but as I'm tapering their steroids, I see the cord starting to get a little bit thicker. Then, then I almost, that's, you know, a sign like that. Even before they're symptomatic, before we're having like serious attachments and colds, sometimes you can just see the cord getting a little bit thicker. But again, like I said, who knows how much fluctuation there is just in a normal cord, in a normal cord time of the day, week to week, month to month, year to year. But again, just, just again, has to be taken with a grain of salt. So we touched briefly on, on posterior vitreous hyperreflective opacities. Are there OCT findings in the vitreous that you do like to look for in uveitis patients? How about you, Dilraj? What do you actually find clinically beneficial in the vitreous when you're assessing the uveitis patient? Well, some of the things are similar to how we view retina patients as in the status of the posterior hyaloid, whether there's an epiretinal membrane distraction, you know, those kinds of things. And also important when we are considering cases who have intermediate uveitis or parsimonitis and distraction, you, you want to assess that status. In context of assessment of the vitreous cell or vitreous hyperflective foci, I think it goes back to what we discussed. They are nonspecific. They, it's hard to replicate them time over time. And even if you get registered scans that are registered on the ONFOS image, uh, you can get mobility of these vitreous hyperflective dots. There has been, I, I would say that in the context, one context where I find it useful is the appearance of new vitreous hyperflective dots in a patient that I have been following. And if I look inside the eye, there's no hemorrhage. It could be a sign of an early episode of a flare-up. And it would at least prompt me to obtain something additional, like, for example, forcing angiogram to assess. So in that context, I think it is somewhat helpful that at least it prompts you to be on the lookout for an increase in inflammation. Yeah, one thing, one thing I've found useful, maybe just in a handful of UVS patients, are patients that were sent to me by, initially sent to a ocular oncologist for a suspicious lesion. And then they sent them over because they thought it was inflammatory. And maybe the patient didn't have a ton of vitreous cells, but on the OCT, you might see like a consolidation of like a focal area of vitritis just kind of overlying it or, or a cluster of vitreous. Again, who knows? Totally nonspecific, right? But at least if I treat that with steroids and I see those that focal area improving along with the height of that choroidal lesion, again, it can, can be telling. But again, it, like I said, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, I think what you're, I know what you're talking about, especially like if you, it's a cluster in the perivascular kind of vitro-retinal interface, you can sometimes, you won't see sheathing, maybe you're not doing an FA that visit, and you see this new foci there. So it's almost like early, if it's like what Dilraj was saying, if it's something new, maybe they're symptomatic as well. I almost never use it alone, but I never, almost never use that hyperreflectivity alone. But you're right that I definitely note it, and along with these other these other parameters, I, I might escalate treatment. So moving on. So Phoebe, you, you mentioned a couple of times you, using perivascular thickening on your thickness maps, maybe as, not, I wouldn't say maybe as a surrogate, for F, not necessarily as a surrogate for an FA, but just to give you some additional information. So when you see perivascular thickening on an OCT thickness map, what is that kind of telling you? I think it's actually a pretty good surrogate for FA. I mean, it's, I don't know how well it correlates from a one-to-one -one basis. 
we don't have good quantitation for FA leakage to begin with. But I do find it correlating with somewhat to some degree with FA leakage. And, and again, I don't actually use that information all on its own. But along with other signs of increased intraocular inflammation, like more vitreous cell, perhaps more vitreous haze, perhaps increased FA leakage, again, hard to quantitate. But I like it as a surrogate because I don't, I'm not getting an FA every time. In children, it's difficult to get FAs. You can get an oral FA, but you don't, you're not necessarily trying to do that every time either. So I really like it, and especially in those pars planitis patients, but also the anterior intermediate uveitis patients where they have um, some degree of systolic macular edema or, you know, or, or intermediate spillover. It's, I find it really nice to look at that global non-cystic perivascular thickening and compare that from time to time. And I find that, I find, you know, anecdotal, I find that it does actually seem to, to correlate with, with disease activity from other parameters as well. There was, I think, a nice Jaffe paper on that. So, yeah, Dilraj, any like any like particular conditions? Like Phoebe mentioned a couple where she finds it useful. Any particular conditions where you find perivascular thickening? I don't want to say routinely increased, but something where you're at least on the lookout for it. Yeah, man, actually, you showed that beautifully in that paper in the in your paper that cases of birdshot perivascular mm-hmm. thickening is actually quite specific for disease activity. I do want to highlight that you know this is only assessing the posterior pole and the very posterior vessels. And once you start treatment, that typically responds quite quickly. It is not reflective of the leakage in the periphery. And that's often as we're moving more and more towards complete quiescence, it's not a surrogate or a marker for being able to detect that. So it's not a substitute for wide field angiograms. And secondly, it's important to distinguish perivascular thickening from just non-cystic thickening. Because non-cystic thickening is more universal. You can get that across all sorts of inflammatory conditions, even diabetes, for instance. And that's a very useful marker to follow disease activity because in the absence of CME, if your retina starts to thicken, that means you are undertreating the patient. And then like Phoebe mentioned, in children, it's very, very helpful because it's hard to get an angiogram every single visit. And as long as you're seeing progressive reduction in the central subfield thickness, as a surrogate for non-cystic thickenings, it means you're on the right track. Now, Dilraj, you had mentioned the use of the near-infrared imaging before for looking at, for example, like AMN imaging. Do you have other uveitis conditions where you found looking at those near-infrared images to be helpful? So any kind of a vascular event, it would be helpful. So including PAM, including small areas of arterial occlusion, it's helpful. It's also helpful for looking at um, areas where you might have obstruction like cotton wool spots or things like that, they would show up as hypo, hyper-effective lesions. I don't find it to be as helpful uh, at looking at the outer retina. Uh, I think when we start going towards the RPE, we would shift more towards autofluorescence imaging. But conditions which are affecting the inner middle retina, I, I think it's very, very helpful. What, what, what do you think, Phoebe? Any specific conditions that you are looking at those NAR images? or I mean, I think I think we're all probably looking at them, but I think they can be especially helpful in, in a handful. Any specifics for you? No, I think that's, I think um, Dilraj summed it up really well. AMN, looking at PAM, um, it's really nice for punctate interretinitis due to syphilis. Like these, those are, can be really highlighted well if they happen to be in the macula where you're, where you're usually looking right off the bat at your baseline imaging. But yeah, so I, I agree. So the inner retina, not usually outer retinal lesions. I think I've had a couple of patients just presenting with these microscotomata, and I'm always concerned that maybe my you know, volume scan isn't dense enough to actually have, get a line scan through whatever one of these lesions. But I, I find that another area where using the NIR, where you're either getting this reconstruction or true NIR, like, like though I said in the Heidelberg system, to maybe show you something that maybe I'm not just not just not getting a line scan for it, something to kind of explain symptom that I can't otherwise explain. What do you think for it? Yeah, I agree. That's that's actually who I probably favorite the most in is is when patients' chief complaint is is scotoma, especially small scotoma, the ones where it's like even hard to get them to draw it out incredibly well, even on an Amsler grid. And you're like, well, I just show me what you're seeing so I can try to find it on an imaging imaging etiology. And oftentimes, you know, they will show you that very small scotoma. And when you go back on the near infrared, you know, you can almost map it back. And, and I think that's reassuring, at least for that it is something organic, that that's the cause of there. I don't always know what to do with that then. And, you know, in the presence of other normal exam or normal imaging, sometimes it's a little hard to know where to take that. But at least it is nice if there's something you can monitor over time then. So that's probably where I primarily use it as well. Although I do agree, sometimes it's nice and it highlights a lot of like cotton wool type of spots. Uh, 
in a way that I'm always, always impressed by. You're like, oh, wow, that's a really good capture of what I've seen on the exam. All right. Moving on to, to, to evaluation of the optic nerve. You guys both said that maybe majority of us do like baseline RNFL analysis and we have some distilling maybe in a volume through the disc. What about like on follow-up, like follow-up visits, Phoebe? Are, are you checking like repeat RNFL analyses on patients that you're treating with steroids perhaps, or if they have like a peripapillary CMV getting a repeat volume scan through the nerve or what, what situations are you rechecking that nerve? I have been, you know, so for posterior kind of retinal vasculitis with optic disc edema or just optic disc edema is maybe one of the primary features with like scant vitreous cell or something like that. Though I do actually follow the RNFL thickness over time because it's actually not bad. I mean, you always have to make sure to check for the way that it's segmented. And so you can't, you can't follow them quantitatively if you have bad segmentation. So I would just warn people to remember to look at that. But typically, you can tell very easily now, especially with that Heidelberg system, whether or not it's well segmented and whether or not it's reliable to follow quantitatively. And I I do follow it quantitatively, kind of the same way that I look at that perivascular thickening, except in slightly different patients. I find it very useful. What what about you, Dilraj? No, I agree. I think it's also important to recognize that with active inflammation, your RNFL is going to swell up and that may mask uh, progressive RNFL loss due to glaucoma or due to steroids causing trochlear pressure elevation. So as your inflammation settles down, you may notice RNFL atrophy that was previously underdiagnosed. And it's very important that you know your threshold for referring these folks to your glaucoma colleagues may be different as you start to assess the true extent of RNFL damage. And then qualitatively, you know, getting a volume scan through the optic nerve is helpful in patients who have neuroretinitis or who have optic nerve edema with lesions or inflammatory or neovascular lesions adjacent to the optic nerve. And I also find it helpful in cases where there is some element of vitropapillary traction because, you know, that can also cause problems like vitreous hemorrhage, et cetera. Uh, it can also cause artifactual thickening of the nerve fiber layer focally. So in those cases, I think it's helpful. Oh, you know, I wanted to mention one more thing. This is reminds me of actually a paper that Laura, you wrote, <laughs> and that is like the u- utilization, the utility of a um, optic nerve volume scan, not just RNFL, but the volume scan through that parapapillary area for these outer retinal lesions that are in, um, just adjacent to the disc. I feel like they're, they're potentially more consequential than we think. I, we didn't necessarily look at exactly how they affect development of glaucoma or visual acuity prognosis, or you tried to, it just wasn't feeling it with the necessarily determine that in your study, Laura. Mm-hmm. But I feel like those are those are areas like in birdshot, multifocal choroiditis, probably even sarcoid, where we were capturing that um, parapapillary volume on both sides of the disc might actually be be potentially prognostic in some way in terms of either activity level, like um, predicting activity level, or even just tendency to develop glaucoma in our birdshot patients. Yeah, so I just want to put a plug in for that paper that Laura wrote, actually. And I do like getting that, like like you suggested, if you like that volume can over the disc when you have those peripapillary lesions, because oftentimes I don't feel like you're, you're kind of just catching the edge of them, right, with that arcade to arcade macular scan. And oftentimes that's a a high real estate in your vision area that you want to make sure you're not having the level activity that you're missing on on treating. And so I really like that. Yeah, sometimes you'll see some of these patients, right, MFC, maybe they'll develop an azor-like thing on top of MFC. And they get this, they do get like more and more outer retinal loss over time as well, in addition to these lesions that we see in the parapapillary area. So Now, one other thing I wanted to mention is that sometimes you get referred patients for CME whereas actually they have macular schesis in the outer plexiform layer. And you can see that in cases of glaucoma, you know, particularly advanced glaucoma or normal tension glaucoma. So it's important to recognize that. It's important to get your RNFL imaging because, you know, that's obviously a different line of management. And I actually follow a fair amount of the, I'm going to call it ocular hypertension slash UV to glaucoma in my own practice. Just there's a lot of demand for for our glaucoma specialists, you know, I, I try to handle as much as I can be medically managed. And I think it is important to make sure you are getting some of these more baseline numbers to track over time because there is this tendency for thickening in the average uveitis patient compared to the normal controls. And so you do want to be able to watch that trend line over time, especially if they are a hypertensive or, you know, you have an Osirac and they had a pressure spike into the 40s because you compare that with visual field testing. You know, just like all we're talking about, this is all, all imaging, right? It is not in isolation, right? Um, but it gives you something to at least track over time. Maybe they haven't had an inflammatory papillitis necessarily, but maybe they've always measured a little bit thicker. But now, you know, they've had higher, high pressures. They've got some visual field changes. And when you go back to look over time, you're like, geez, this person is thinning, even if mm-hmm. they're not into that 
red, red zone yet. And that's, you know, that's something that I think worries me more. And then that's a person that maybe does get escalated up to the glaucoma colleagues. It doesn't just continue to get IOP lowering drops from, from me. So that's, that's, I think the other way where I like to, to use the nerve OCTs. Well, making a huge jump from the posterior segment to the anterior segment, Delarge, are there any patients for whom you, you feel like anterior segment OCT is, is, is useful? Yes. So I think it's, if you start from the outside, you know, I think it's helpful in some anterior scleritis patients where there's necrotizing scleritis. It is helpful to monitor that thinning objectively over time, so, you know, especially the ones where you start to see that brownish discoloration and your level of concern is extremely high. It is helpful for more for documentation purposes to assess iris nodules, patients who have GXG or who have sarcoidosis initially, it does give you nice images. You can assess keratic precipitates very nicely, especially the larger ones. You can use it to monitor corneal edema postoperatively. You can use it to assess if there are fungal infiltrates in the cornea or after patients have had a transplant. Uh, you can, it's a more objective way to monitor for changes. You can, and there's great data from our colleagues at Cleveland about assessing anterior chamber inflammation, particularly cell and correlation with flare uh, using anterior segment OCT. I must admit that I have not used that quantitatively in, in clinic. I certainly have used it qualitatively because again, you know, coming back to children, sometimes it is easier to get one single scan, anterior segment OCT scan, rather than having them sit for the sit lamp particularly after they, you see them after they've been in the clinic for a few hours and are not as happy as they were when they initially <laughs> got there. So in that sense, yes, it is certainly helpful to get a sense. But for tracking changes over time, I, I don't think we are quite there just yet. What do you think, Phoebe? Any situations? Zora mentioned a whole bunch and a couple of them, I was like, oh yeah, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, I'd say that for me, anterior segment OCT, I, 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 I use it certainly, I think, for, for cases of scleritis. But I hadn't thought about, you know, like in cases of like, like, like fungal infections and stuff post-transplant. That, that's very interesting. Anything else that you use it for, Phoebe? I use it for peripheral ulcerative keratitis, PUK, you know, to again, to monitor thinning, recovery of some of the thickness over time with treatment. So I, I like it for that. For anterior chamber cell, again, more qualitative. I don't, I just don't have access to kind of automated segmentation of anterior segment OCTs for the for the purpose of quantitation of anterior segment OCTs for cell count. But I think it probably has a utility in terms of a, a nice objective outcome for clinical trials. But I yeah, I just don't because we don't have access to that. We don't I don't use that for anterior chamber cell at all. But I like that idea. It's just I guess the correlate I, I actually find more utility in just the UBM over the anterior segment OCT, because you can get deeper, further back. You can look at the ciliary body structure. You can look at the IOL positioning if you're considering something like UG versus some other chronic anterior uveitis. And you can also see cell and potentially quantitate cell using UVM. It's just not really talked about that much, not as fun as OCT. But so mainly I use anterior segment OCT to look at corneal thickness. That's just, that's the main thing. And I mean, I guess I don't, I guess I'm not, I'm not getting as good scleral scans to be able to do the scleritis patients. That's a good point. Probably would be nice to use it for um, post-supercortal injection patients too. Or <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That, that, that's yeah. a very interesting thought. So we are, yeah, just to add to that, we are looking at that, you know, okay. the supercortal uh, delivery and also in cases of implants, you know, like the Redisert or the recently approved port delivery system. You can capture the area around the implant very nicely on anterior segment OCT. So issues like thinning, bleb, erosion, et cetera, you can you can document and monitor those anterior segment OCT as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I may have to add this into my practice a little bit. I was going to say I may have to add this into my practice a little bit. If you it's can get something... them to do it for you, Laura. <laughs> yeah, there's that. There's always that. I feel like I I, I use UBM a, fa- a fair amount for for the reasons you delineated, Phoebe, but I haven't haven't really done a ton of anterior segment OCT. Although I do think the puck patients actually might be a, a group that it, it would be helpful yeah. in, so maybe that's yeah. something I'll have to have to add into my my armamentarium a little more than I currently do. UK patients, I'm sure. Yeah, I have like two UK patients. Just <laughs> a lot of them. So I get two anterior segment OCTs per year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving on to OCT angiography. So we we kind of mentioned a couple of things about uveitic CNVs and stuff like that. I, you know, personally, I'll say for uveitic CNVs with, with OCTA, I, I think that 
if it's obvious, I find it very helpful. But oftentimes, if I don't see anything, I'm, I'm not sure if it's just like a segmentation issue or what. So, so Phoebe, like OCTA, do you routinely use it for all of you guys' patients or just a subset? Um, not, not routinely. I've been trying to test utility, and, and, I, and I think there needs to be more data in its utility. There needs to be nice like longitudinal studies visual outcomes, you know, related studies. As we mentioned earlier, in the context of PIC and multifocal choroiditis, it's really nice to actually identify CNV within a potential inflammatory lesion or distinguish an inflammatory lesion from a CNV lesion. So I find that really nice. And then there's just qualitative data that you can gain. And I guess that's that's what I've taken away from, you know, so we've done some OCTA studies too. And I'd love to see it as, as being a surrogate for FA leakage, but it's not, we don't have great wide fields as of yet. And in terms of calculating things like flow indices and vessel density, it just varies. It varies on your kind of technique, the way you do that. Also the media opacity that would decrease your signal. So all of that's like fraught, I think it's still fraught and you can't really use it clinically for things like surrogates for FA leakage, for instance. But so I find it mainly useful in terms of the CNV. Milaraj. Are you going to let her say that we can just use OCTA for, for CNV? What else What else are we using it for in our uveitis patients? Yeah, I think, you know, the true advantage of OCTA is when you take the on-fos image and then correlate it with the flow overlay on the structural image. So that's when you can start to assess ischemia, whether it's in the inner retina or when you start to see flow voids in the choriocapillaris. And I think that's pretty helpful because initially you do want co-localization of those areas with for example, ICG and geography, but as you're monitoring patients over time who have all sorts of these placoid lesions, you can assess the, at least maybe not the resolution, but at least the reduction of the, these flow voids. And there is, again, the potential of reversibility that if you start treatment early enough, you will see restoration of flow. So I, I do think that is helpful, but like Phoebe mentioned, it is extremely important to recognize what is signal versus what is artifact when you're looking at an OCT and geography image. And particularly in our uveitic patients, if you have inflammatory issues that are affecting the media, you have to be certain that what you're seeing is, is, is actually true pathology. How, how can you tell the difference between a flow void and, and a cortical lesion? Or does it not matter? Uh, in, in the context of, so on a cortical lesion, you will see features on the structural OCT, which should not be present in a flow void. You will see you will see a deficit of flow in both the situations, but you will not see something. We, going back to what we talked about initially, you know, it's hard to distinguish these choroidal lesions sometimes in cases like birdshot, etc. But if you're seeing a lesion, then it's, that's basically the, the distinguishing factor. Now, if the lesion is small, then you will not be able to distinguish them because both the situations will have an absence of flow on the overlay and will have a darker area on your on-fast image. So they will look identical. Right. I mean, so this is kind of going back to the point where similar to ICG and we, we see these hypocyanus and lesions, are they areas of infiltration or are areas of ischemia and, and the similar thing when you're assessing the capillaris or, or what have you on the OCTA? Maybe does having OCTA make you less likely to get ICGs on some of these patients? I mean, or, or does it really not impact your utility of ICG? No, just because, the, I mean, we, you know, we have wide field ICGA um, clinically, and um, we, we, don't, we don't have easy access to a wide field OCTA. So as, that, as we are able to access that rather than in a research protocol, I think it might be, you know, have increased utility over time. But yeah, I, st I still, I actually have been getting ICGAs more and more because I, I just, I'm not super satisfied with the information I've been getting from OCTA. But yes, but I mean, I think, yeah, they just have, you know, have to be correlated with each other, especially to the B-scan, to the actual structural findings, which if we can. So. Actually, how do you use it in your practice, not being at a large academic imaging center? Of, of yeah. excellence in yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, I think for me, it, I, I use it, I'd say in a lot of our, like Bill Raj and Phoebe said, in a lot of my thick and multifocal cortex patients, especially I'm not sure if they actually have a CNV. But like I said, if I see a CNV, I'm very excited. And if I don't see it, I'm still kind of scratching my head <laughs> whether, whether there could be a small CNV lying there. I think it's also helpful, like, like they've said, in just kind of monitoring resolution of flow voids. So if I have a, someone with like a white, some sort of white dot syndrome or something where there's just all these core capillaries flow voids, just kind of monitoring their improvement over time. Um, I also find pretty helpful, but I'd say personally in my 
practice. OCTA is not a huge um, component. I still do far more floor scenes and almost, I'd say, more ICGs than I do OCTAs, to be honest. I'm probably in the same boat as you. I tend to still rely really heavily on floor scene angiography and then ICGs when I need it. I, I do use some OCTA, but it's mostly like we've talked about for those like multifocal credits and pick lesions, trying to figure out if there's a net in there. But I think I, I think it's it's a struggle as as you guys brought up with media opacities and then the reliability of the segmentation. And then I just sometimes don't know what I'm doing with the results I've gotten. <laughs> so it's like, you know, if it's not going to impact my clinical management, I've always embraced it. But I do like that idea of maybe looking at flow void resolution as at least something that's a little easier to to hang your hat on that you're doing something positive for the patient. So we like to always end, if we can, on some high, high value take home messages for our <laughs> listeners. And so we're going to just kind of go through a couple of our very favorite uveitic conditions. And, and was hoping that Steve and Delage, you guys could hit the high points on what you might want to be watching for on OCT for these or, or the EDI. So OCT, OCTA or EDI imaging. And we're going to start with VKH. So a few, why don't you take it, take it there. So new VKH patient, what do you want to look for? Yeah. One of our favorite conditions, VKH. So classically, you would have a bilateral granulomatous panuveitis clinically. So that OCT, EDI, OCT, and OCTA, what would you see? So you know, if it's kind of classical VKH, you can have basilar detachments on the OCT. Those are very characteristic. So you have these pockets of subretinal fluid and interretinal fluid and these septae that have this appearance, this basilar appearance. So um, along with cortical thickening on the EDI, especially, it's going to be really hard on those patients if they really have severe disease to see the cortical junction without EDI. So with EDI is very helpful. The vitreous cell component, again, more qualitative, but you would see that, that corroborated. And then finally, optic disc edema. So those, those different things are all seen in VKH, and you can follow the optic disc edema with RNFL thickness and make sure that convalesces along with everything else. Because sometimes what you have is a persistent, you know, chronic uveitis after the original convalescence, but you might still have recurrences of portal thickening, or you might have recurrences of optic disc edema. So both the EDI and the RNFL is actually very helpful, even in convalescence of VKH patients. So I think Phoebe hit on it very nicely. We're trying to go through just a couple, which have maybe perhaps a little bit more maybe pathognomonic findings, obviously not not uniformly. But so on to our next one, Dilraj, what about what you might see in someone with black-white syphilis? So it'll be the outer outer layer loss, uh, diffuse outer layer loss. I think that's uh, very typical. Because in cases of retinitis, your outer layer loss should typically be in the area of retinitis. Whereas if it's more diffuse involving the macula, that's almost always black-white syphilis. And the other remarkable feature is the reconstitution of the outer retina after you treat them. It's always amazing that how a drug that has not uh, that was developed over half a century ago, and there's no resistance to it, and it works every single time. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to one of the things I feel sometimes I catch perhaps a little bit earlier than than colleagues that aren't seeing as many U.S. patients is things like black-white syphilis, where there's just like this diffuse kind of outer retinal loss. This you're, you're on your OCD thickness maps, everything looks kind of bluer, just thinner. Um, definitely, definitely something to kind of look for. So, Phoebe, you you've published a lot on this. What about vitreoretinal lymphoma? Yeah, so there um, there are various appearances. I, I wouldn't call them pathognomonic. There's such a huge diversity of presentations, but there are a couple of tip-offs, I would say. And so you have if you have these large, lumpy, bumpy elevations in the RPE above Brooks membranes that appear to coalesce, that are acquired. They're not like old drusenoid PEDs or something that are acquired, especially in someone of the elderly age range above 65. Then you would think lymphoma. But the other interesting lymphomas you can also have. These really small dot-like excrescences in the RPE, it might even look very similar to syphilis or syphilitic outer retinitis. But the, the characteristic thing I think about vitreoretinal lymphoma that presents with that more dot-like appearance is that it's very uniform. So we have these little pinpoint dots that are extremely uniform. So there's a very different appearance than those coalesced elevated lesions that I mentioned. But I, I actually think they're both very characteristic. I don't, I characteristic. Neither of them are pathognomonic, but they're both very characteristic. So, so one thing that I've used, you know, OCT, especially like peripheral images for is if, if the media is just hazy and I'm, I'm like, is that an area of retinitis? And, and I just can't tell because obviously that greatly kind of changes your differential and you're, you're very concerned with if someone's going to decompensate with some sort of infectious retinitis over a couple of days. So Dilraj, what does retinitis look like on an OCT? 
So it's a diffuse hyperreflectivity of the neurosensory retina, and that's completely disorganized. So full thickness necrosis typically. And uh, like you mentioned, it's very helpful to get scans through the area of retinitis. I sometimes find it helpful if you're trying to distinguish between a herpetic etiology versus something like toxoplasma, for example, which will have more for choroidal involvement. And you may, not always, but you may see choroidal thickening. And syphilis, for example, which will have more diffuse outer layer uh, loss that will be larger than the extent of the retinitis. So Phoebe, any other highly suggestive OCT findings, any particular conditions that, that you can think of? Yeah, no, I mean, syphilis and infectious risk. So syphilitic retinitis compared to herpetic or toxoplasmic retinitis are, are very different characteristics than something like vitreoretinal lymphoma. Even a vitreoretinal lymphoma is supposed to be able to masquerade a lot of different things as a syphilis. So, yeah, so no, I think those, I think you can really distinguish that, those two. I would mention also the difference between sarcoid and TB. They're two sides of the same coin, but kind of the larger, deeper granulomatous processes, cortical granulomatous processes that cause like large undulation. Like you really think of those as more like a tuberculoma than a sarcoid granuloma. Although I get, I, again, it wouldn't be pathognomotic, but I think you would, might be leaning more towards something like TB over sarcoid. If you have this deeper, more undulating, would appear to be a, a tuberculoma. So deeper undulating choroidal retinal process. And Dilraj, any last ones you want to throw out that our listeners should definitely take home and not miss on OCT imaging? I, I think I'll just quote my, our boss here, Glenn Jaffe, who really sums it up well, that OCT is our ocular vital sign. It's like our stethoscope. We, we really, it's indispensable. And we, it's amazing how we continue to learn more and more about the technology and we are able to delineate more and more imaging features of pathologies. So I think it's, it's encourage everybody to be generous in using it and also direct it towards where you see pathology on your exam. It doesn't have to be restricted to the macula. On that happy note, I want to thank Phoebe and Dilraj for spending their Sunday evening with us going over the use of OCT amongst our UVI's patients. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And we hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of Headlight in the Fog, the UVI's podcast. Stay well and stay safe. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.